folks, we have a bonus podcast. And I have to thank this individual for letting me know they existed and the work that they're doing on campus. We have Craig Fortier, the University of Waterloo, teaches in social development studies. So assistant prof, Craig Fortier, can you please introduce yourself? And again, thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, thanks so much, Christopher. Um, I'm really happy to be a part of this. This is a really cool class. Um, yeah, like you said, I'm an assistant prof in social development studies here at the University of Waterloo. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm really excited about the idea of really tackling the social justice aspects of sport. And particularly because, um, like I was saying to you uh, before we started recording, like it's really critical for us to meet people where they're at, the things that people are interested in, and really start to have those conversations uh, where we've built relationships. And so for me, this is a real great opportunity, and I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited for this. And I think you really nailed something there about, you know, meeting people where they're at. And also, too, you know, especially coming from summer 2020, you know, folks who are following the NBA, well, NFL to a certain extent, you know, Major League Baseball. So what is social justice in sport? What does that mean for folks who, you know, they followed and they saw everything in the summer, but they're like, "Ah, I don't get it. Let's just shut up and dribble type of people. Yeah, well, I think that's a really, it's a really good question because I think there's this mentality that's been built that like, yeah, shut up and dribble, like put your head down, play the game. And I think it is like from the sort of the corporatization of sport over the long history, right? That like athletes have always struggled. They have been workers, they have been uh, fighters, you know, um, you know, baseball is my real thing. And, And if you look back on baseball history, like, at every step where baseball players have try, tried to organize and fight for their labor rights, whether it be like Kurt Flood in the 1970s who fought for a free agency and was blacklisted back then, whether it was the Federal League, which was like a player like run league that was competing with the National League and American League and was shut down by the U.S. Supreme Court. Like, you know, in baseball history is filled with these political moments, and, and, and I'm only talking professionally, right? We can really even talk rec- recreationally as well. And I think that we have to recognize that that mentality of shut up and play actually, I think, is comes from sort of advertisers and media and owners of teams who are really trying to discipline their workers into not demanding for a better world, right? And And I think that's really... Um, something we have to recognize as, as, you know, athletes have always been doing that. And I think we, we had an era where they were really snuffed down, you know, like the Michael Jordan era of sort of players Mm -hmm. where, you know, keeping your head down and kind of like, you know, loving capitalism was (laughs) like a thing, but that's changed. Right. And I think it's changed particularly because the NBA, uh, has been such a dominant force for social justice. And, and and we have to acknowledge it's been a dominant force of social justice because I think particularly the Black players in the NBA have really done work to mobilize, to speak across each other, to build like collective power. And they've influenced the rest of professional sports by far, you know, along with the WNBA and, and other uh, leagues that have really pushed, pushed the envelope. And I'm so glad you mentioned Kurt Flood's name there 
And I know a lot of folks be like, Kurt, who, who's, who's this? What, what happened? What? Labor? Wait, capitalism? Sport? What's going on? And how come a name like Kurt Flood, especially when we look at, you know, labor relations, the corporatization of professional sport, baseball, which we're going to get into shortly, how come his name, particularly what he did for all players, you know, following literally being blacklisted, for lack of a better term, how come we don't hear these names and his name in particular? Yeah, well, Kurt Flood, you know, um, like, you know, if you're talking to people from this generation, Kurt Flood was the Colin Kaepernick of his generation and like and bigger, right? Like this was somebody who wasn't just fighting, you know, uh, a labor fight. He was fighting a racial justice fight. He was fighting uh, like a, a workers fight. He was fighting around, you know, like the the soul of baseball right and yeah. for him to be sort of um at the forefront was like a real vulnerable risk right he he really stood up when a lot of players who were you know way more financially secure at the time uh you know uh refused to do so and his premise was really linked with the social movements of the day he was like look like the fact that teams can own players and that we don't have the freedom to determine the uh, our labor is akin to the slavery system, right? And and we are being sort of tied to our employer, and that was like you know that was a really you know political message, and it was one that was shared by a ton of players. You know, people like Bob Gibson, who was a great pitcher and a teammate of Kurt Flood's, um, and there were there were these really important outspoken black. American baseball players in the 1970s who have all that whole generation has been sort of quieted by this discourse yes. of the Jackie yes. Robinson, yes. you know, and the Branch Rickey and this 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 simple story that, um, you know, the, the breaking of segregation only happened in one season. And it was, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just this myth of, um, you know, I call it in my social movements class. It's like the myth of the. Um, savior, right? That what what we don't recognize is that like justice happens from the small actions of many people, many of whom are erased or forgotten, and not the sort of leaders who are sort of like their their legacies are stolen by those who have the interest to tell their story in a way that demobilizes everyone else. And you know the same happened with Martin Luther King, in which yes. you know. The radical edges of King, his ability yes. to see war and capitalism yes. and race as being interconnected, are flatlined, right? And uh, I think that's what happened with Kurt Flood. You know, he was at the time. You know, he's akin to like, you know, if you looked at his, uh, if you're like a sabermetrics person, if you looked at his WAR for those eras. He was in the top ten of his league for those times. He was he was a star, and he was shadow of the game because he demanded something that we take for granted today, which is that baseball players should be allowed to choose the conditions of their employment and the wages they're willing to work for. And one thing you nailed, well, you nailed in everything. And one of the things I'm trying to get across to students, you know, to folks who consume this podcast is that we always think of particular names. And I, I like how you really mentioned as the first, or it happened that particular moment. And we can, you know, we can use the example of Jackie Robinson. That was it and nothing else. And then we did it and we're done. 
And one of the things that I, I'm really appreciative of how you're pulling in and understanding that folks like Kurt Flood, black man, what he did got a lot of people paid in the future, like black, white, and purple got yeah. a lot of people paid. And we'd never sit back to be like, hey, MLB's never like, hey, let's have a Kurt Flood day because you know what? Y'all free agency, y'all got paid because of what he did and literally did not get any money after that. He didn't. So how do we reconstruct our understanding of sport, right? The the sport that we consume within this larger understanding of capitalism, labor, and so on and so forth. Where where does this kind of sit and how should we reframe this for, for a young audience? Yeah, well, you know, let me tell you a story because I think it relates to um, some of the work that I've done, which is, you know, um, this would have been maybe about like seven years ago. I was doing my PhD, didn't have a lot of money at the time. And uh, my partner did this incredible thing for my birthday, which she got me um, tickets to go to Cooperstown to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And that's great. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So we did a road trip through like upstate New York. Um, So cool. It was like, you know, you know, my birthday's in the wintertime. So it was like it was kind of like a snowy adventure. Um, You know, Cooperstown's pretty dead in the wintertime. So we kind of had the run of the town. And I kind of got to live out this like fantasy of like being able to be in this uh, really like sacrosanct place in baseball lore. And um, and I was so excited about the museum. And for me, like Kurt Flood, like I'm just I'm not just not dropping his name. Like he was he's somebody I've always like admired and I've loved reading about him and his history. And I was like really eager to see how the Hall of Fame covered him, mm. right? Because I assumed, you know, this is such a historic figure, both Kirk Flood and at the time, the the leader of the labor union, Marvin Miller, right? And I'm like, these were like, you know, two quintessential people who have changed, you know, the the all of professional sport by their struggle. Mm-hmm. And, and by and large, they were just, they weren't there, right? They were absent. And I was disappointed, but you know, you're there and there's this magic. There's this magic, I think, you know, for baseball fans of Cooperstown, like, you know, people, children who go to Disney, right? Like you can kind of like fall into the lore. And, you know, we had brought our gloves and, you know, it was like, you know, it was like a November day. So it wasn't super snowy, but it was like, you know, chilly, but we brought our gloves and we were playing catch on like fields that I was kind of imagining of like, you know, that story of like Abner Doubleday invented baseball on the (laughs) shores of Lake Otsego. And it, it really dawned to me, I'm like, you know, I'm like a, a social movement and radical history researcher, and I know this is all bullshit. And <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm drinking this Kool-Aid so hard, and I'm feeling really like nostalgic for something that didn't happen. Mm. And I, you know, I decided I was going to come home and dedicate like a couple years of my life to researching the story of baseball and what I learned and maybe just in a nutshell what I learned was that like baseball you know it emerged alongside when people say baseball is America I think that's true but it's not true in the way that Ken Burns and other Mm. big documentaries have kind of like uh, whitewashed it and made it super like um, you know beautiful like baseball emerged you know in Cooperstown New York itself emerged through the like 
uh, like the pushing out and genocide of indigenous people, right? And it actually spreads, you know, it's a children's game in England that spreads in the Americas precisely amongst like soldiers and military men who were like on off days, you know, in between genocidal raids and dispossession of people from their territories. <laughs> I love how we just say that like in passing, but that's exactly what happened. Yeah, right? exactly what happened. Yeah. And it's exactly what happened, but it's, it is completely erased. You know, so when I started doing um, research, if you, I, like I've read like dozens of baseball history books and they all kind of like, it's part of the history. Like they're not hiding it, but they're like, you know, so I, the, one of my favorite baseball history books um, is by this guy named David Block. And it talks about uh, baseball before it was baseball basically. And, and he has this passage where he's like, did all this amazing archival work and found these like letters by a military general, um, you know, before the US was the US. So like a British military general who's like writing about the boys playing ball in the yard. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Like, so he's done all this work to uncover like some of the earliest mentions of playing baseball in American history. So he's done that really good historical digging but what he doesn't do is put it in context, right? Like, so, you know, as somebody who's more trained in like a Marxist analysis, I'm like, well, what is the context around him in which they're, the boys are playing the ball, right? And yeah. and what I find out is, oh, actually, so they're in the midst of like literally going into people's communities and, you know, terrorizing them to leave so that they could set up settlements. Um, and and what I learned from there is actually, you know, so baseball is a game of lines, right? And and this is a, a unique American addition to what was the European game, which, you know, they had bases and stuff, but it wasn't so well, you know, like they're the foul lines and right. the base lines and all that. That was because after the soldiers had, you know, pushed people out and conquered space, the surveyors came next. And guess who played baseball with the the soldiers was the surveyors and they taught them about straight lines, you know, get the lines up, get this game to be much more concrete. Yeah. Folks are paying attention. This is, this is my mind's blown. My mind is blown. Sorry, Craig, go ahead. No, no problem. And so like, so these are some of the roots of this, but right. And, and I'm, I'm not even leaving upstate New York yet. Right. And, the thing is, is then you see by the 1840s, so like, you know, just before the U.S. Civil War, um, baseball really becomes like the, the rules of the game that we know today becomes really formalized in New York City. Right. And, and, and specifically just across the um, I guess it would be the Hudson River uh, in a part of New Jersey that was called the Elysian Fields. And. There were, you know, the the teams at the time who became sort of the first sort of like organized baseball teams, they were made up of like middle to upper middle class people, right? So like, you know, uh, butchers and mm. shoe makers and, mm -hmm. you know, these type, type of people, right? And, um, and they were the ones that started to sort of create this mythos that that baseball's origins are in this like made up pastoral beautiful like rural setting right but really baseball emerges in an urban space and it's it's made up in an urban space that actually is quite contested right particularly the areas so they're playing in the Elysian fields up until 
Central Park is built. And, and in Central Park, they, they start to play organized baseball there. But what was Central Park before it was Central Park was it was the black the black neighborhoods of yeah. New York City and Manhattan. And so you see this new dispossession to make room for the game, right? Mm. And so for me, you know, I still love the game and I'm not like, I don't want to write about it and research it because I want to trash something I love. But I think it's important for us to understand in this moment when, you know, when there's like a real cultural battle happening right now in Major League Baseball, right. where, you know, a player like Fernando Tatis Jr. can be like disciplined for hitting a grand slam because yeah. uh, because he's showing up the the white players on the other team. Um, and I think that this is a, this isn't just something that is like you know, a weird cultural phenomenon that like needs to be ironed out, but it's rather it is rooted in the history and a practice of who is who is determined to be acceptable to play this game, who is determined to be an outsider, why that happened, and what the history is behind that. And I, I think that's why, you know, people sleep on history. Um, but I think if we understand history as just an articulation of like the current context, Right. You know, through its its like its roots, we have a better understanding of why things are happening today, right? So letting folks know, so Craig, I, I feel odd just saying Craig, <laughs> like Professor Craig is the author of Stealing Home, Decolonizing Baseball's Origin Stories and the Relations to Settler Colonialism in Settler Colonial Studies. Craig. One thing you really hit home there is that we consume sport. And I'm, I'm glad you use the example of today, what's happening in baseball and keeping the game, quote unquote, traditional. But what we just heard there is that even the narrative that was created out of baseball is contested. Why do people want to hold on to something so hard that is not true? I mean, that I think that is the question of Canada and America in a nutshell, right? Which is that like in settler colonial spaces, in places where Europeans came and and not just sought to conquer, but to to stay, right? To build on top of other people's like lands and and change the nature of the relationship with the land like what we have to hold on to is that that sort of mythology right and 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 i think it's way more important than people give it credit for right so thinking about it if we kind of go away from sport for a moment and you just think about the way in which for instance like you know canada's supreme court if you look at any decision that has been made around indigenous claims to sovereignty the court has to continue to rely on this idea of terra nullius, right? That there was nobody on the land prior to European colonization for it to justify Canada's occupation and, and yes. claim to sovereignty. Yes. And we do this legally through this mechanism in which we're like, we understand that this is not true, but because our legal system would like literally implode without just <laughs> continuing this myth, it, you know, it serves the best interest, quote unquote, best interest of Canada to continue to maintain the myth, right? Mm. 
And let me tell you that actually, this one of my new research focuses is on the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court does the exact same thing with baseball. So there have been a number of baseball-related um, cases that have been brought to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in all of them, including the very first one, which was adjudicated by a Supreme Court judge who was named Floyd Mountain Landis, which is an amazing name. Uh, but I was like, he, is that a made-up name? <laughs> no, yeah. So he, he was a real-time U.S. Supreme Court judge. And his ruling, which was, you know, his he was the sort of deciding person who wrote the the ruling. And basically his argument was that baseball is so fundamental to U.S. identity and like having some kind of cultural attachment to the land that we have to support Major League Baseball's monopoly on professional play of baseball. Right. And this was sort of the the federal league's challenge to the Supreme Court, right? And that is held, right? It it is held and we see it right now as minor league baseball players are working through the courts to try to fight for basic decent living wages. Yeah. We're seeing, you know, we're seeing this held. But the funny thing about Floyd Mountain Landis is actually after he retires from the Supreme Court, he becomes commissioner of baseball. And he, oh boy. he is the commissioner of baseball who really hard line, line fights for the maintaining of the segregation of the game, right? And so, again, understanding these interconnections, right, that, that, that things did not just happen because history kind of rolled through and baseball was just sort of a bystander, but literally the game was like at the forefront of American political policy, particularly around race and land and identity. And how does the narrative, I'm putting narrative in air quotes right now, how does a narrative of Jockey Robinson's quote unquote integration into baseball support this false narrative or erasure of truth, because what you're giving right now, you know, Craig, is truth. These are historical facts. What does this narrative, this mythology, or this Santa Clausification, for lack of a better term, of Jackie Robinson, how does that play into what dominant narratives want us to think about sports, specifically baseball? Yeah, well, you know, um, first off, like, you know, Jackie Robinson did that work, right? And and I want to acknowledge it. And I want us to recognize that, like, you know, this isn't a critique of Jackie, right? Like Jackie, I, I think, know. A, that narrative is um, is used to sort of like wash out the fact that, you know, like, if you, you know, and I know this was even a criticism when that movie 42 came out, which was that, like, in the first year, Jackie Robinson agreed not to fight back. Yep. But every subsequent year, Jackie Robinson was fighting back. He was thrown <laughs> out of games left and right. Um, white players hated Jackie Robinson. He dealt with more racial abuse after that first season, that like magical integrative story per season, than he did the rest of his life. And he was very bitter you know, and very broken uh, from doing that work, right? You know, he was somebody who I think was really hurt by it. 
and and there were many people who followed and and that struggle never stopped and the struggle continues right the fact that like players like uh, you know i remember in 2000 i want to say it was 2016 when freddie gray was murdered by the baltimore police yeah, yeah. And, and 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 there's this there's this interview in which the baltimore orioles sent um, their center fielder, Adam Jones, who was one of the only black players on the team, out into the media because they had to play a game where there was no fans in the stands, which seems like completely commonplace these days. But, you know, it was historic back in 2016 when it was like the first game in like Major League history where there was no fans in the stands. And because there were riots going on in Baltimore because of the murder of this young black man. And they threw this their only real notable black player out into the media and you could see the pain he was going through in juggling these two narratives on the one end they threw him out there so that he would help quell the protest right so he there's this narrative in in thing where he's like look i feel you i understand i agree with what you're you how you're feeling but we can't be burning down our city right and so he has this sort of like pacification a message that he's giving but there's this this like undertone the unspoken body language that is really like this person's being forced as a black person to kind of like pacify his own people that he disagrees with this right and you can see the angst in him and about a year or two later he starts to really speak up about like the fact that like because major league baseball has become so rooted in like a capitalist development system that it's young white kids who are sort of recruited and trained and have the money to go all these tournaments and showcases and he's like it it means that there's far fewer african-american people in baseball to be able to collectivize like they have in you know nba or nfl to be able to unify a voice so he's like if i speak out i'm targeted and i i might not get a next contract right And I, I think about that to this day because that that means that like, you know, Jackie Robinson, which was, you know, in the 1940s, um, th- th- a lot hasn't changed. It's just the makeup of what's happened has morphed and changed and the marketing and the suaveness of sort of white and and I'm not even talking I'm talking more like the get like for students who have watched the film like the get out type of white people who are the like liberal kind of you know good guys I would have voted for Obama a third time (laughs) type of crowd right that crowd is now dominating sort of this this framework of sort of like a passive white supremacy that has real world violence to both the players and communities right um and sometimes we think about that as being um you know they're they're millionaires it doesn't matter but like that's still somebody's soul that is their life that is their health that is their Mm well-being and they have to go to a work environment in which you know when uh for instance when mookie Betts signed with the los angeles dodgers and everybody knew the unspoken thing was that he was tired of hearing Boston people scream racial slurs. Please say more about Boston. People don't know much about Boston and their racist fans. So thank you for that. Right. I mean, it is, I think uh, at least, you know, um, 
amongst black athletes that I, I follow or uh, on social media or, you know, conversations I've had. I, I'm a good friend with uh, Morgan Campbell, who's the oh, sports dope. writer for yeah. uh, the Toronto Star or mm-hmm. was at one point. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and, you know, Morgan talks about like this underlying conversation of like, you know, you don't want to play in Boston if you're a black person because like the fans will like, you know, and it's not saying that Boston is necessarily more racist than the other cities in the U.S. or Canada, right? Because I've heard my share of racial slurs thrown at Blue Jays games. <laughs> but I think it's that it is more aggressive. It's more unchecked. And, you know, as as a player, like this is somebody he has to sit out in the outfield and he just hears it yeah. by himself. And so I think... There was a reason he didn't want to sign that long-term deal with Boston and end up, you know, and I think Los Angeles, you know, for better or for worse, like, you know, for, for baseball it is a better place for him to live his life and not have to deal with that kind of abuse as regularly. And especially because the Dodgers have, I think, one of the more racially diverse fan bases in baseball. 100%. And for folks who want to learn more about Freddie Gray, um, happened April 12th, 2015. So you want to check out, I, I remember that season because it was opening season, you know, the opening week or opening second week. And it was eerie. I mean, I mean, now, like in 2020 and 2021, you've kind of gotten used to empty stadiums. But then it was just the strangest thing to see no one. Well, Baltimore it's hard to get a crowd in Baltimore in the spring, but it was a really eerie thing. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up about uh, Freddie Gray. So folks, if you want to learn more about that, check out Freddie Gray, G-R-A-Y. A big question I have for you, Craig, it's because I know your work focuses on, you know, baseball and settler colonialism. For a general audience, can you explain what settler colonialism is? Yeah, yeah. So I think the easiest way to think about it is that you know, colonialism happened, you could categorize it in two ways, right? There was the the way in which, say, Britain sought to colonize India, which was, we'll send some military, we'll make agreements with a certain group of the population who will kind of keep people down in an order. Uh, But we're going to really run the show from London and, you know, and rely on our, like, you know, the people we've kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, like got on our side in in India to yeah, do yeah. a lot of the force, right, and, and maintain control. And we're really there to take the resources. Uh, we're not there to stay. But in the case of North America, right, Britain and, and France and you know Spain and other other colonial powers, they came and they were like, you know we want to claim these territories and we want to ensure that they stay in our power. And the one way to do that is by sending our people to stay and build societies on top of the lands of other people. And so settler colonialism is is sort of this ongoing project, right? Uh, that, that happens, you know, uh, here in Canada, in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa had a, a settler colonial project that is yep. ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state of Israel right now is yep. an ongoing settler project. And and so these projects, you know, while they have uh, commonalities with the other form of colonialism, there are some unique elements to them that require us to think about it differently, right? And particularly those of us who are here, right? 
and who are living here. And, you know, in my relationship with indigenous peoples in, in their struggles for sovereignty, you know, indigenous peoples, you know, at least mo most of the people I, I organize with are, are not saying necessarily, right, that, mm -hmm. okay, everyone needs to get back on the boats and go back to where <laughs> they came from. But they are saying, like, if we're going to build right relationships amongst ourselves and each other, right, that we have to do it in accordance with the principles of both of our our people, right? right. And, and and I'm saying both, but obviously there's a multiplicity, right? Mm -hmm. um, because obviously some people, right, like whether it be migrant workers today who are flooding in from right. uh, the, the global south, or whether it be uh, enslaved Africans who are forced onto these lands, like our pathways mm -hmm. are different, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we have to acknowledge the, that the pathways we got here are different and that uh, that means we have not that we can't join the fight, but that we have different responsibilities in that fight, right? Mm. Um, so that's kind of like my like short bit on settler colonialism. Uh, does that make sense? Oh, that makes perfect sense. Because cool. I, I think what happens is we, in 2020, 2021, you know, similar to my work, we throw around terms like systemic racism or confronting anti-Black racism or settler colonialism. You and I were like, oh, yeah, cool. Got it. Understand it. But folks are sitting there thinking, okay, so what does that mean? And I think what you've done is really tie that understanding of, okay, cool. You know, this was a process or this is, I should say, the ongoing process. And how are we to reconcile that in that particular space? And one of the things that, you know, and I, I don't use the word reconciliation lightly. Where do we go, particularly when it comes to us consuming and participating in sport. I would even say baseball specifically, because even here I, I jotted down a note about the surveyors and I just blew my mind, right? Like, hey, we're gonna, oh wait, who's the same guy? Oh my gosh, right? Yeah, <laughs> you think yeah, about that yeah. and you ask yourself, so how do I, and maybe, you know, you don't have to get too personal on that, you can generalize on this. Like, how do you still enjoy sport knowing what you know? And I'll, I'll give you a prime example, like myself. Um, big into football <laughs> you know what I mean I'm mm -hmm. big into NCAA football I'm big into these sports and I'm like man I know how the sausage is made I still consume it so it's literally on you know Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday I need to turn off my brain and just enjoy it but how do we we tell folks across the board who have who've now been in this class they've been exposed to this in different sports how do we tell them to still enjoy the sport that they love yeah, honestly, that is a hugely important question. And I, I, I am going to go personal because I think it's the only like honest way to answer that Appreciate question. Appreciate that. Thank you. So like I I thought a lot about this and um, and in relation to so I play like recreational softball, right? I used to play baseball when I was younger, um, fairly competitively. But, you know, um, obviously it's it, it is not a game that you can really play recreationally with a group of people because it it's quite dangerous because of yeah. the velocity of the ball. And yeah. if people aren't really well-trained as pitchers, it can be really scary. And so, um, so I had a lot of thoughts about this and, and for me, like playing competitive baseball growing up was a really toxic environment. It was like very abusive. Um, a lot of like homophobia, a lot of like misogyny, just like mm. really like shitty dynamics in the clubhouse that like right. you know they were yeah I like I think people talk about it as like you know uh 
uh, hazing and all this, but like they were like, you know, they were very like abusive, emotionally, physically, sexually abusive spaces. Mm. Right, right. Um, and it really turned me off. And, and there were was a time in my life, probably from about 18 until about 24, 25, where I just kind of like shut out like sports in general because I was I was done with it. Right. I was just tired of that culture. Um, and it wasn't until I started to think about, um, you know, uh, I was organizing pretty um, heavily uh, in my like after my undergrad with this uh, a social justice group called No One Is Illegal, and we were doing mm-hmm. like anti-deportation work. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it's, you know, it's a really stressful work. You fight against somebody's deportation and you fight and you know that their life is at risk and you lose and you see them deported and you're waiting to hear back to to know that they're still alive on a regular right. basis. You know, it's so it's heavy. And I just noticed that like we were really burning out as like organizers and I was like why don't we like why don't we start a softball team we'll play in like the Toronto recreational softball league whatever and it'll be fun it'll be like blow off some steam so we put a team together made up of almost entirely like political activists from the city of Toronto young young people Mm. um, including a number of people And, and this is where it started to hit right we really included a lot of the people we'd been working with who don't have papers in the country mm. and for them it was like one of the few opportunities where they could safely play in public and not feel like their life was at risk or they were at risk of being like ratted out by to immigration authority they didn't have to give anyone their papers to play in the league so and so forth um, and I was like, you know, I think we can do more with this than just play, like, you know, blow off some steam and play ball because it right. was super fun. Um, and and the leagues were tough, right? Uh, because the Toronto Recreational Softball Leagues are full of that same dynamic of like, you know, really puffed up, toxic masculine men who think that they're like playing like in the world series and i love those guys i love those guys yeah that, that make it unfun for everyone right yeah, or like, like hold on like you could have totally. did this when you're a kid like we're here to kick it and have fun right like, exactly on. or it's like you know like though we'd play teams like you know we were really big in our um our team about like gender you know it's a co-ed league so we we're like we should have gender parity or at least have like you know ensure that trans players could have a place to play and non-binary right. folks um, but we would play these teams where they'd have like, you know, the minimum amount of women and the maximum amount of men. And they would they would call their batting orders and their batting orders would be like Dave, Sam, woman, <laughs> Ryan, woman. Right. I and you're like, laugh. Okay, I, shouldn't laugh. I know, but it's true. Right. Wow. And so I was just like, you know, this is so gross. And so we got into a lot of like on-field scraps for a few years with other teams just like trying to like push back against that culture um and then we started thinking like what if we made a league of our own right like we you know that movie was really um big on our minds that that old movie with gina was it gina davis gina and madonna davis, madonna i'm telling you one of my favorite movies great movie tom and hanks in that too tom hanks yeah so we like we uh, we like did all the process. We applied through the city. The city rejected us 
and then we started a phone and email and social media blitz against the uh, because we were like we're offering like a league that's for non-binary people, a league that is pushing for like uh, like racial equality, a league that is is talking about like settler colonialism, and you're gonna reject us so that these corporate like Toronto sports and social club type of groups can like profit off of public space. Um, and that worked, and we got our league. Good. And it's called the Field of Dreamers. Field of Dreamers, awesome. Field of Dreamers, folks. Yeah, and we wrote a. We actually co-wrote. Uh, it was published in the Journal of Sport History, uh, a history of of this league. Um, it came out, I think, two years ago. Um, but one of the key things that we committed to was this real process of building relationships uh, with Indigenous people in the city. To, to invite them to play ball with us. And so we we already had contacts with folks who uh, were organizers that we had organized with. And we were just like, let's really affirm that. But we have to affirm that not just in, you know, inclusion, because inclusion can be such a hollow process when it's just about like adding faces and people, Agreed. not Agreed. like engaging in a transformative process of your space. So one of the things we decided was, you know, Baseball is a game that is all about ceremony. And as much as I find it off-putting these days to watch professional baseball go on with that ceremony, I think it's like, it's what appeals to me to the game is that it like, there's that sense of like a lack of particular, I don't know, like, you know, it's like the millennial desire to have ceremony and tradition and things that we, that have been just eviscerated from our society by the time we True. grew up. Yeah. And so we talked a lot with um, some of the Indigenous players and we were like, we want to really start a process of like having an opening ceremony before the season. And that included, you know, like we have the same kind of pomp and circumstance where we, you know, we've got the the DJ there with the walk up music and we've got like, you know, it's in Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto. So it's a very bustling park. And, you know, Everyone's got their walk-up music and it's super like out and queer and proud. Right. But there's also this like moment where players are asked to sort of stand on the baselines and take their caps off. And then there's the statement read that talks about like, so each team in the league is named after one of the four rivers in, in Toronto. Okay. And we talk about that, that the history of the rivers are the history of indigenous relationships with these lands and in fact like tree bellwoods park is actually built on top of something called garrison creek which is a tributary of the the one of the rivers hmm. and and it was kind of like and so we're like literally standing above the water wow. while we're we're playing the game and we try to affirm like through this process not like one of those like you know here's your land acknowledgement statement and the person's going to read it with no emotion in their voice, but right. rather like a real ceremony of like thankfulness. Um, and it's shocking how many people who are like, I would call like, you know, park dwellers, you know, people mm -hmm. who live in kind of occupy space in the park um, who would come up to us and be like, oh my God, you know, like I'm Métis or I'm Cree and I've never heard anyone like actually recognize that relationship. Wow like in Toronto and it's ridiculous that it's a, like this performative little softball league, mm -hmm. but it's really built this ethos. Right. And so our team, like each year now, our, our league um, 
tries to do political action. So we had, um, you know, there was an elder, an indigenous elder in the city who passed away the first season. And so uh, we raised funds in the league to help pay for his funeral costs. And, okay. you know, the next season, uh, you know, we actually started, it was the year uh, the Blue Jays had, um, the year after the Blue Jays had played Cleveland in the playoffs. And so we oh, had right. a community education thing in the park um, talking about why the like the Cleveland Indians logo was like a really racist and messed up thing. Right. And and so we try and do that political work, you know, like, as I said, at the start of our conversation, like where trying to meet people where they're at. And for us, it was like, well, you know, we're sharing space with people who use the park. So this is our you know, this is where we're going to build our community. And it's made a huge difference. It's made a difference in my life. Like I now I sort of operate even in my like fanship and like consumption of sports. It's also like a consumption that comes with this like real desire to like affect the sport, right? Like to make like, like to make my fandom active as opposed to passive. And I think that's why you summed up why I have this um, very difficult relationship with the Toronto Raptors in this 2021 season. Craig, thank you so much. I mean, we need to get a part two. Cool. We're, we're yeah, gonna, well, we're going to get a part. <laughs> this is awesome. So, Craig, how can people get a hold of you? Because I think, you know what, especially for this course, and the spaces you're coming from, I mean, I find this riveting. I mean, particularly tying the histories to baseball. I know we have a lot of baseball athletes and fans in this course, and I know this is a publicly disseminated podcast as well. So how can people get a hold of you, or would you like people to get a hold of you? You know, what's next for you? Yeah, anything. Go for it. Any parting words you got for us? Yeah, so uh, uh, you can email me at uh, at my URLU address, which is just Craig, C-R-A-I-G dot Fortier, F-O-R-T-I-E-R at URLU.ca. Um, if you want to check out Field of Dreamers, our website is fieldofdreamers.org. Um, it's it's a really fun experiment. We're always happy. If people are interested in setting up like their own leagues based on some of the model that Field of Dreamers does, like we're like really into like open source sharing, helping people out. Like, you know, we've already helped uh, a league out in Winnipeg do one and a league that is in Montreal. So you know, we're really into sharing and trying to like build the culture together as opposed to it being like one that only bros can play. I like that only bros can play. Craig, again, thank you so much. I'm hoping at least some of these students will take your courses at Waterloo because I want to take one of your courses at Waterloo now. Uh, this is fantastically dope. And we have people, you know, publicly and say, hey, you know, let's get a hold of Craig. So Craig, again, Thank you for taking the time. We got to get you back here for a part two. Again, thank you so much. Really appreciate this. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.